So I, I recently came across the story of a young woman named Marie Louise Gertner. Um, her, her friends and her family, they called her Maddie. Uh, so called Maddie. When Maddie was 18 years old, she was living in France as the Nazis rolled in and took over, took possession, occupied, occupied France. Um, Maddie had spent her whole life, she was raised, her whole family were musicians, and so she spent, since she was probably three years old, not just dreaming of being a concert pianist, but she like practiced, she trained. Everything she was doing, everything she did with her life was about becoming a great concert pianist. And so even at 18, she was on the, on the cusp, she was on the verge, she was playing all over the place. She was amazing, incredible pianist. And then here come the Nazis, they roll into to France, and, and things changed. Maddie was a Christian, she's Catholic, and she thought it was part of her job to be part of the resistance against the Nazis in France. And so at 19 years old, as soon as you know, they came in, she realized here's what's going on. At 19 years old, she became a spy for the resistance, and she would put on concerts, piano concerts for Nazi officials, and while she was in the concert, afterwards she'd you know, visit with people and get all this information and pass it along through to the resistance. I just think it's so cool. <laughs> Here's a 19-year-old spy. Like, I play the piano, I'll be a spy. Um, just making the, most of this, uh, making the most of what she could do. And then a couple years later, the Nazis figured it out, and she became their prisoner. And for the next number of months, if not a little over a year, almost every day, this now, by now, 20, 21-year-old Maddie was tortured every day by this young Nazi doctor um, his name was Leo. Eventually, as we know, uh, France was liberated and the Allies won the war. But Maddie, the torture had changed her so much that the life she went back to was n nowhere near the life she had left. The damage that was done to her uh, central nervous system, the damage that was done to her arms and her hands made it she could no longer play the piano at all. She spent the rest of her life loving music and longing, wishing she could create music, but being unable to play the piano at all. Maddie had a dream, and it was over. She wanted to be a mom, and because of the torture that she had gone through, Dr. Leo had made it so that she could, no long, she could never, never be a mom. The life she returned to, she couldn't, she couldn't stand, she couldn't sit, she couldn't be awake without being in acute pain for the rest of her life. And we look at Maddie, a life like uh, a story like that, and you're like, "My gosh, that you're done, right, Maddie? You're you're here at 21 years old. You're done. At 21 years old, years old, your story is over. At 21 years old, it's like this is the end because there's no coming back from that kind of thing. Like the reality of being, Maddie could look at her life and say, "No one can fix this," and she wouldn't be telling a lie. No one can fix this, and it can feel like that's just. That's the end. And you and I know this. Life can feel like that a lot. Actually, life can be that a lot. Then we get to the end, we're like, that's it. That's the end. This is done. It's done. At the end of the semester, less dramatic, but still, it's, it's done. This is it. It's the haze in the barn. It's what it is. Um, I'm failing out. I'm, I'm done. This is over. You, you and I, your family members, you experience real sickness. And it's just like, no, you can't come back from this. I know some of you this last semester have experienced heartbreak like you never have before, the end of a relationship. 
That's over. It's done. That's the end. Again, there's, no one can fix this. There's no coming back from this. These goodbyes. Some of you here have experienced death. And you know that there's no coming back. This is just, that's, it's what it is. That's the end. Because of that, because we all come to this place where we, at some point in our lives, maybe many points in our lives, we come to the place where we're like, that's just the end. No one can come back from this. No one can possibly fix this. I think it's important for us to be, all of us, to be reminded of this truth. Yes, the dream might be over, but the story is not. Yes, this might be the end of the dream, but it is, it is not the end of the story. But it's so, it's so hard to see that. It's so hard to realize that truth when you're in the midst and it feels like, no, this is just the, it's just the end of everything. There's no coming back from this. That's one of the reasons, you know, why, why the church continues to say, hey, become familiar with this story. Become familiar with this book. Because this book is full of stories of people who are like, no, it's over. It's done. This is the end. No one can fix this. There's no coming back from this. In fact, the first reading today from the prophet Baruch. Now, here's what you need to know about Baruch. Baruch and Jeremiah, bigger prophet, they were contemporaries. In fact, they worked with each other. I think Baruch was essentially Jeremiah's, like, Robin to his Batman. And Baruch's writing in the first reading today about the most devastating thing that happened to Israel. You know, we all know this. We all know that, that um, when God came to Abraham, he promised Abraham and the people of Israel, he said, I'm going to make of you a mighty kingdom. I'm going to make of you a nation. Secondly, he said, I'm going to give you land. And thirdly, he says, through you, the entire world is going to be blessed. These are the promises God makes to Abraham. And every Jew hangs all their hopes on this is, this is the promise. This is what God's going to do. He's going to make a mighty kingdom. There's going to be a land. And through the people of Israel, through us, God is going to bless the entire world. And when, you know, they get a king, it's like, this is looking good. They get King David. It's like, looking even better. They have Solomon. And they're like, we're living the dream. This is it. And then they, Solomon has a son. And everything goes to crap because, like, the kingdom, after that, second, that son of Solomon, the kingdom just completely divides. There's ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, and they're, they're no longer united. And you may be like, well, yeah, it's fine, because it's just, it's just a little civil war. It's just a little kind of break. We, there, maybe there's still hope. And then what happens is the Assyrians come in from the north, and they destroy those ten tribes so that they are never recovered, never seen, never heard from again. God, are you, God this is the end. How are you going to come back from this? Well, at least we have Jerusalem. At least, at least we have his holy city. At least we have the temple. At least we have all of this stuff. And when Baruch is writing... The city of Jerusalem is besieged by the Babylonians. And they're about to come in, and what they're about to do is they're about to exile the people of Israel. Take them, say, you don't even get, you don't even get Jerusalem anymore. You don't even get your temple anymore. We're going to take you up to Babylon. Imagine being in Babylon. Saying we not only we don't have a kingdom, we don't have any land. The story is over. The thing is over. The dream God promised to us, that dream is over. It's the end. And that's when we have to realize this powerful truth. God does not start anything. He does not plan on finishing. This is the story of this. That God does not start something he doesn't intend to finish. But when we read these stories, we recognize how much of God's story is written in darkness. This is so important. When we get familiar with the Bible, we realize how much of the people of God's story is written in darkness. How much of it is written in what looks like the end. In fact, the second reading today, St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's, what, it's one of the things that's called uh, St. Paul's prison letters. Not because he was writing to the prison. <laughs> he was writing from prison. 
Here's St. Paul, who's like, I'm, gonna, I'm an evangelist, I'm an apostle, I'm going out. And he's arrested, he's in chains. And he's writing to the Philippians saying, hey, rejoice. He's writing to the Philippians, and we heard this in the, in the reading today. He's in chains, he's in prison. If you looked at his life, he could say, this is the end. It's done. How in the world am I going to get out of this prison? How in the world am I going to accomplish God's will? What is he right? To the, to the Philippians, he says, I am confident. I was like, dude, how? I am confident. He says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it. St. Paul knows the story. He knows that so often, yes, this might be the end of the dream, but this is not the end of the story. He knows that, yes, God does most of his stuff in what looks like darkness, in what looks like the end, and when it looks like all hope is lost. He's like, no, no, I know this. I know that it might be the end of the dream. It's not the end of the story. I know that God does not start something he does not intend on finishing. And so he says, he says, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it. So here's the reality. God has started a good work in you, too. Not just the Philippians. He, is, he has begun something in your life that is not yet done. So important to know this. God has started something in your life that is not yet completed. What's, just think about this. What's the good work that God has begun in your life? There's a ton of good works. I mean, being here, this is something God brought us to this place where we get to study, we get to learn, we get to grow, we get to become the people who know stuff and can do stuff. Maybe you have a job prospect, an opportunity, an internship, a co-op coming up. Like, that's a good work that God's begun. Maybe there's a, not the end of a relationship, maybe there's the beginning of a relationship. But God has done, he's begun a good work in you. You have, like, family who actually love you back, even if they love you imperfectly. That's a, that's the beginning of a really good work. All those things, all of them are good works. Sometimes they're so good that we can even think that they are the good work. But we know that every one of them at some point will come to an end. And so we know there's a greater work that he started. In your life, here tonight, there is an even greater work that he has already begun. And that greater work is that you, you will be his. For you to be his is the good work that he started. That, um, that you would be the person he has crafted and called and consecrated to be. That's the great work he's begun in you. And so no matter what, no matter what you're going through, no matter what the battle is, no matter what the struggle is, no matter what the, the ending is, when it comes to that, this is not the end. That's why Baruch can look at the, 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 the Babylonians coming in to the city of Jerusalem, and he can write what he, we heard in the first reading today. He wrote to his people who can see all of their dreams crashing to the ground. This is the end of the dream. This is not the end of the story. And Baruch writes the words, the people are rejoicing that they are remembered by God. That when you know that God has begun a work, good work in you, and he will continue to complete it, you realize that, no, I can rejoice that I'm remembered by God. Now, what is it to be remembered by God? It doesn't mean that God forgets you. God never forgets. He's like an elephant that way. God, it doesn't mean that God is ever passive. It never means that God is absent. To rejoice because you remember by God is the moment that we realize that he acts. 
when you rejoice, that you remember by God, it's the moment that we realize, wait a second, he is, he's here. To rejoice that you're remembered by God is the moment you realize, he is fighting for me. He has never stopped fighting for me. That even in darkness and even in secret, he continues. Go back to the Philippians. What did he say? He says, I'm confident in this. The one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it. That will continue to complete it is really important. That means he has not stopped and he will not stop. He will continue because he's already acting even though it seems like he's absent, even though it seems like he's passive. He is here and he is fighting for you. That's why we have to make this act of faith. That God has not stopped, therefore you cannot stop. God has not stopped, therefore I cannot stop. But to take those steps in faith, even if it seems like he's absent, even if it seems like he's passive, to realize, no, no, he has not stopped, therefore I must not stop. He is here and he is fighting. That's why Jeremiah, okay, Baruch and Jeremiah, right? Those two guys. Jeremiah was living the same thing Baruch was living. When the Babylonians, this is the coolest thing, when the Babylonians were surrounding Jerusalem, Jeremiah, knowing that God was not absent and God was not passive, that God was present and God was fighting, knowing that this might be the end of the dream, it's not the end of the story, what Jeremiah does is he takes some money and he, he buys the plot of land that the Babylonians were camped on as they were besieging Jerusalem. Saying like, no, listen, here's the deal. This dream might be over, but the story's not over. And even if God doesn't bring me back, he's going to bring the people back. And so I'm going to buy the land that our conquerors are on because I have faith that our God is here and that he is fighting and he will continue to fight and he will continue to be here. That's amazing. That's what we're called to do. To be able to keep walking in that faith even when it seems dark. To keep acting so boldly even when he's secret. That I may not see it, but I know that God is here. I may not see it, I know he's acting. That's why I just love it. It's so cool, you guys. The first reading, uh, it's the gospel today, uh, beginning of Matthew's gospel. You, you've heard it. It's, you know, it's the, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, uh, Annas and Caiaphas of the high priest. No, one of the things that Matthew's doing in this by setting up the stage is he's, he's letting us know that this is a historical thing. Like this actually happened, and when did it happen? It happened this time, where did it happen? In this place. It's like Matthew's making it very clear this is not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away or once upon a time. He's saying, no, it happened at this point. He's establishing the historicity of this. But the second thing he's doing is he's naming how awful it was. Everyone who's reading Matthew's gospel, they'd be like, oh, yeah. Remember when Tiberius Caesar was Caesar? He was the worst. Tiberius Caesar was a worse Caesar than Nero with more violence and more depravity and more awfulness that he did to the people than Nero did. So when Matthew writes, okay, remember when things were so bad that Tiberius Caesar was, was the Caesar? Yeah. And then Pilate was the governor. Sometimes we, we have this image of Pilate at the end of, you know, the Gospels where the Passion, he's like, well, I don't want to kill Jesus, but if I have to, like he's kind of this conflicted, like, oh, poor guy having to kill our Lord. But Pontius Pilate was a really bad guy. There's some out extra biblical sources that write about how like terrible, terrible Pontius Pilate was. And that's that's the secular authorities, right? That's like that's the government. Like man, remember when the government was awful and there was no one good in charge and they were so cruel to everyone? Yeah. Well, at least the church was okay. No, he mentions he says also it was the time Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. There are some extra biblical sources about how terrible Annas and Caiaphas were. Like you're like man. 
back then when it was just absolutely the worst anyone could ever possibly imagine. On the government side, we have terrible leaders. On the church side, we have terrible leaders. Remember how God was absent? Remember how he was not present? Remember how he was not fighting? Remember how he was passive? And Matthew says, no, no, in the midst of that, John the Baptist showed up. But even more, even more than that, we know a deeper truth. We know that by that point, when Tiberius was Caesar, Pontius Pilate was governor, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, we know that when it was that bad, we know that Jesus had already been on this planet for 30 years. We know that God was present, right? The word had already been made flesh, and God had already not just begun the process, God had already been acting in the process. He had been fighting for us on this planet. Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, here fighting for 30 years, and nobody knew it. Nobody could see it. All they could see was looking around saying, how could it get any worse? The dream is over. But the story is not. And God does not begin something he doesn't intend to finish. God's not done. So you're not done. Which brings us back to Maddie Gertner. As I said, she spent the rest of her life in this acute pain. Longing to be able to make music, longing for children, but having neither. Maddie spent uh, the next 40 years not wishing things were different. She actually, one of her lines was she said, <laughs> to a friend, she said, I shall not make a tragedy of my life. Just the courage in this woman because she realized, no, she has a Catholic Christian. She's, she said, the goal of my life, the great work God's begun is not to be a great pianist. The great work of my life that God's begun is not to just, is not to be a mom. The great work of my life is to be like him. And so every day, this is so painful, every day what Maddie would do is that she would ask Jesus to make her heart like his heart so that if she ever had the opportunity to see Dr. Leo, she could forgive him like he would. And in 1984, 40 years after she was released, she got a letter in the mail from Dr. Leo. And by this point, he was an old man, and he was dying, and he remembered Maddie for his whole life, the rest of his life, and he knew he didn't want to die before he asked her for forgiveness. And so he wrote this letter to her, asking if they could meet. Maddie said, yep, you can come to this address. And this man, this old man shows up, and he falls to his knees in front of her, and he says, will you forgive me? And in this moment, Maddie took her hands that he had wrecked. And she took his head in her hands that he had destroyed, and she put his head on her womb that he had destroyed. She said, in that moment, I dropped him into the heart of God. And I said, Leo, I forgive you. She said, in that moment, I realized that forgiving him liberated me. The great work of her life, again, was not to be a great musician or to be a mom. The great work of her life 
was to have a heart like Jesus. And even though those dreams had ended, her story had not. And some of your dreams have ended. But your story has not. And some good works that God had begun that I'll put to the side. But the great work, the good work that God has begun, he will continue to bring it to completion. Because God doesn't start something he does not intend to finish. And tonight when you're in that darkness and it seems like God is not present and God is passive, we just remember, no. God is here. God is close. God is fighting for you. He has not stopped, so you may not stop. Because the dream might be over. But your story is not.